Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Almost immediately after the Second World War, the American military initiated a program to collect the Nazis' most promising scientists and bring them to the United States in a form of intellectual and technological reparations. Anxious to best the USSR, which was also recruiting among Nazi scientists, the Americans often turned a blind eye to some of the darker atrocities some of these researchers had been implicated in. The Americans and the British adopted rocket scientists, chemists, and perhaps most controversially, biomedical researchers. The severe ethical compromises required to claim these so-called reparations from the Germans bred a host of conspiracy theories and pearl-clutching documentaries on television marketed as educational. Perhaps the most bizarre theory, which gained traction among therapists who believed in a pandemic of satanic ritual abuse, was the legend of Dr. Green, or Greenbaum. The story tells of how Green, a Jewish teenager, came along to the U.S. with a crew of Nazi scientists as part of Operation Paperclip. In America, he earned a medical degree, and drawing on his study of the Kabbalah, worked for the CIA in developing the prototype for their mind control program. Today, on Occult Confessions, we follow... Nazi scientists, as they travel from Germany to the U.S. and try to get to the bottom of the rumors surrounding the Jewish Nazi mind controller, Dr. Green. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. As we're drilling down into the conspiracy uh, crust of the earth here, we want to keep things as simple as possible, so it's just going to be me today and our uh, Grand Master of the Order, Olivia Literal. Olivia? Hello! So you might have noticed Olivia was missing last episode. She's going to be in and out a little bit right now, because, uh, fun fact, Olivia is back in the classroom, back in the saddle. Everything is chaos! Everything's on fire! <laughs> My life's down! <laughs> <laughs> Education is a gentle process for Olivia. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah trying to finish this degree it's time <laughs> olivia prefers the more fo- informal education of the podcastosphere <laughs> yeah i do i really do <laughs> all right let's see if we can you don't make me write a paper no that's so. well i mean i don't do you count the episodes you write <laughs> yeah you do make me write papers that's that's a lie wow huh. yeah those are much more involved than i think actual research papers for for college I just realized, basically, I never stopped your class <laughs> writing papers for me. <laughs> having a moment right now. You're okay. not really writing them for me anymore, though. You're writing them for the no, uh, confessors. No. Everyone's my teacher. Everyone's grading you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of people okay. grading you. <laughs> now I'm anxious. This took a dark it's turn. Okay. Today they're grading me. Let's punch it out. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. That was like insane. Nice. Like the band. Well, see, because I think we are have the most practice at this. Yeah, it is just two of us right now. Even, oh, the third person is always the one who does it every three or four episodes or every five episodes. <laughs> We're the ones that do it all the time. Yeah. We're the experts at pledging it out. <laughs> Let's open up those plugs. Speaking of things we're expert at. Plug, plug, plug. Right, we got a nice, healthy crew of folks we want to welcome to the Patreon today. I want to start with our old friend. I'm sure by old, I don't mean biologically old, but a friend of, of years now. Cat Daddy Welds is back in the Patreon. Cat Daddy. Cat Daddy coming in at uh, the highest monthly uh, donation that I think we get, uh, which, you know, I, I don't like to mention numbers on the air, but uh, just just letting Cat Daddy know that we, we love his Cat Daddiness and Weldiness. Hell yeah, we do. Had a very nice exchange with CRD. Uh, cool, cool character out there listening. Sending a, sending a little love your way, CR. Calvin S., podcast epic <laughs> oh. nice. uh anthony c uh, was looking for an annual option anthony uh, gonna let let everybody know here that yes you can donate annually so if you don't like the monthly charge you could do just you know one donation for the year that also works perfectly fine we got cynthia g 
who's a makeup artist. Oh. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's Anthony cool. S. and Riz, Amanda D., Rennie S., and family. Also, Ian J. Oh. Yeah, the whole crew. The whole family, I hope. <laughs> That's, I hope that's okay. Yeah, I hope that's hope going that's, to that's okay with the whole family, yeah. Ian J, Costello S, and DND for losers. Oh, well, I'm sure you're not a loser. <laughs> but the, specifically, or it's just for this losers. is for losers, yeah. Oh, I got you. Uh, we also want to thank Amy A and Andrew M for the old pledge bump a bump. Thank you very much. Okay, now, uh, getting on to another topic, another person we love very much, Rachel over at Life Mancy. Yes! Apparently wants to lick lick my brain or eat my brain. I don't know what she really wants to do, but... uh, (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) She... (laughs) Lick Rob's brain. Uh, So she she and I did an episode together on the Life Mancy channel on the history of modern occultism. Uh, One of my favorite conversations I've been able to have with... Uh, with somebody, uh, Rachel and I are podcast friends, I think is what we've decided. It's our, our official relationship. Yeah, she's like one of the OG like, podcast friends. Yeah, yeah, she's the best. Uh, we love her show and uh, do encourage you all to check her out. It's got such a unique uh, and positive vibe. Uh, so check out Life Mancy if you haven't yet. She works so hard on those graphics. Right? Yeah, those graphics are intense. Yeah. <laughs> That's the love and care that goes into life, Mancy. Okay, let's close up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. All right, that was all nice and good and loving. Now let's talk about Nazis. Yeah, this is going to get dark fast. <laughs> so fast. What you described in the beginning sounds straight up like a sci-fi, like like a plot on the sci-fi channel, like in a movie. Yeah, with that little anti-Semitic tinge there. Uh, well, yeah, that's part of it. I've know? actually, you know, since I wrote the episode, I've carried on my research a little bit in this area. So I'm going to sort of off the cuff do some updating on the identity of Dr. Green. But um, anyhow. It's a very generic name. Yeah, yeah. I think intentionally. Mm-hmm. So sh- let's let's start with, you know, some real history, some real stuff that happened. So before we get to things that conspiracy <laughs> theorists thought happened, let's talk about real things. So shortly after the end of the war, America's joint, uh, by the war, I mean World War II, the war. Nice. America's joint, not nice. Clarification, nice. (laughs) America's Joint Chiefs of Staff organized a committee which oversaw Operation Overcast. This was focused on finding and recruiting the scientists involved with the Nazis' V rocket program. V. V is for rocket in German. I don't know if that's true. Was that a joke? What was that? I don't, I don't know. It could It could be a joke. I don't actually know. Unless V really is for rocket in German. I literally have no idea. Got it. The most famous scientist they recruited was Werner von Braun. So uh, when the code name leaked to the public for Operation Overcast, it was renamed Paperclip. Along the way, engineers would vacuum up far more scientists and documents than the Americans needed and spread the parameters of the program into a variety of fields of research. Investigators were hired from firms in the United States to do a two- to three-month tour. So regular civilians who were just, you know, working in American industry were recruited to do these temporary reconnaissance missions. Would you do this, Olivia, if if you were asked? What does it entail? You're asking me, and I don't even know. All right, I see you want more details. All right, fine. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not, not sold not yet. Bad. So you're <laughs> Olivia is a regular white collar man in 1950. She's not sure. <laughs> She's not sure if she wants to leave for Germany. Scary over yeah, there. Right. All right. So when my when my friends, these investigators, arrived in London or Germany, they were given a faux uniform. So you're gonna get you're gonna get to cosplay as a military person and a nominal military oh. rank. Equivalent to Colonel, so you also get to be called Colonel, Colonel Olivia. High power cosplay, all right. Colonel Oliver, because you're a man in the 1950s. Yes, thank you. (laughs) They they traveled to facilities, spoke to personnel, and tagged machinery for seizure. Would you do this job? What do you think? Um, I guess it doesn't sound like that bad, but I feel like you're going to describe it further, and (laughs) you're going to tell me how bad it is. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm gonna, on surface, what you just said, like maybe I would, I would maybe do that. That could be, I don't know, maybe. I'm actually, you have to work with the U.S. government. 
but well, yeah, you right? have to work for the government. That's true, but you get to wear a military yeah. uniform and not have to, you know, actually do boot camp or anything. Yeah, I mean, if I was a white man, probably be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to make it any worse, but you you do get into some shady dealings, my 1950s white man. Uh, your reports would be published for equal use across all U.S. industries. So this was the claim because the government was going in and doing this. They didn't want to favor, even though you worked for you know Dow Chemical or something, they didn't want to give Dow Chemical an advantage. They wanted everybody to have access to everything that was you know procured. Mm-hmm. So in theory, you were supposed to publish everything that you found. For some, their first loyalty was to the corporation that employed them. So on behalf of their employer, they visited unapproved facilities and published terse and vague reports so that they could benefit from special knowledge of the Germans' technology. So you're sort of going to go on your own, you know, covert operation while you're over there. So they're not just reporting to the military? Is they're that what supposed you're to be, but yeah, you're, Oliver's sneaking around to other factories. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. When investigators came up against German scientists who were unwilling to cooperate, they were not authorized to torture or beat them, which is kind of reassuring because that's unpleasant. Rather, Germans who refused to cooperate were just thrown in jail. Okay, I mean... Not so bad. Yeah. You don't have to get out pliers or anything. You don't have to do anything gross. But even with cooperation, the task of combing through Germany's vast wartime scientific and technological apparatus proved daunting. Even for experts in engineering, physics, or chemistry, they had no way of knowing the cutting-edge science in all areas, even of their own discipline. So the project ended up collecting far more microfilm than could, it could ever translate and use. I want you all to think, for example, about how I, for example, am an, an expert in American occultism, but I couldn't tell you a whole lot about the newest article on medieval Kabbalah or ancient Gnosticism. I'm trying to say expertise is a very narrow thing. Like these experts, I might have a broad grasp of the field of occultism, but it requires detailed specialization to truly know which technologies or which ideas are the newest and the hottest and the most useful contributions to the industry. So these investigators, on their several months' tours, could not be experts in everything. They were sort of just, you know, making a guess. This looks like it could be useful, you know? Makes sense. So why were... Americans so interested in German technology. The Germans had developed a strong reputation in the hard sciences since the turn of the century. Between the years 1900 and 1941, 26 German scientists received Nobel Prizes in physics or chemistry. You know how many Americans did in that time period, Olivia? One, maybe? It was nine, so we actually did better than you oh, thought. Yeah. <laughs> it was nine. I really lowballed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was safe, though. It was a single digit, but compared to 26, it's a big, yeah, big I mean... gap. So we thought the Germans, boy, they must know something. It speaks to Germany's reputation for scientific achievement, if not achievement itself, because, uh, you know, as you and I know, Olivia, awards only approximate actual success. It's not like in all the success we've had with this show, anyone at all has given us any awards. <laughs> where are our awards? Yeah, where, where are our awards? Not if I wind up, that's it. That's our reward. <laughs> Uh, But there are a series of factors complicating the image of Germany as a beacon of science. So let's go ahead and complicate the German myth here. To begin, with the rise of the Nazis, there was a talent drain as German Jews, specifically, you know, we're talking about Jewish intellectuals, fled the country. In science, this included none other than Albert Einstein, (laughs) who ended up at Princeton. I mean, yeah, they lost Einstein. That's huge. Also, yeah, they lost. They they lost big there. They lost a whole lot of over, other other people though. Uh, Leo uh, Zillard, Jean von Neumann, John von Neumann. I did a French pronunciation there. John John von Neumann, uh, Max Bergman, Karl Neuberg, and Casimir Fajans, or Fajans Fajans. I don't know German. So. <laughs> Neuberg, we talked about him, right? Well, we talked about Neuberg with Crowley. This is a different Neuberg. I was like, why is that name so familiar? Um, Many of these people went on to contribute to wartime research, including the Manhattan Project. So Germany literally, because of their anti-Semitism, gave us a bunch of nuclear physicists to build an atom bomb to blow them up. Oh, wow. Yeah, how about that? Interestingly, 
while this Jewish intellectual flight depleted Germany's store of top-tier scientists, it also contributed to American sense of German superiority. The remarkable talent of these immigrant scientists made Americans believe that the German system in general was operating at a higher level. So in other words, when we got Einstein, we were like, whoa, why are all these really smart German Jews? <laughs> where, where, where are they? Why, why are they? Why do they exist? It must be because the German school system and everything about what they're doing in Germany is better than what we're doing here. So it sort of went both ways. The Third Reich's successes against the Allied powers also contributed to the impression that the Germans were superior, an idea that many historians of the war promoted. So how were the Germans able to so handily invade and conquer France? This sort of is what it hinges on. The myth of Germans being awesome depends on this, that France got its, like, not just France, but Europe, like the Allied powers. When France was invaded, conquered, and became Germany, that was, a, that was a, a lot of egg on our face that day. So historians look at that moment and they say, well, the Germans had to, there must have been a reason why the Germans handed our butts to us and just took France. It's because their technology initially was superior. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But more recently, historians have begun to suspect that this was just an unfortunate consequence of the way Allied forces and the Germans had planned to confront one another. So the Allied forces were just, were just arranging all their power in the wrong area, and Germany snuck into France and took it while, you know, we were out in the back 40. Yikes. Oops. Yeah, we were, like, defending Belgium, and the next thing we know, they're in France. I'm not, I don't know exactly what happened, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the furthest thing from a war historian. Um, I don't know if the furthest thing, but I'm far enough. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Yeah, we could do some brief histories. That's <laughs> yeah, we, really... that's as good as it gets. We we know what Aleister Crowley was doing during both world wars. That's all right, we can but say. Nothing about the war. No, no, we don't know about <laughs> tactics and stuff. In fact, Germany's most intimidating technology, which was the V two rocket and the Mark XXI U boat or Mark twenty one U boat, were part of a German propaganda campaign meant to intimidate Allied forces, but were not developed quickly enough or produced in sufficient supply to make much impact on the war itself. So Hitler was just like, "Look at these things I got! Aren't they scary?" But he only had like two of them. Hmm. Yeah. And but he used them. Uh, yeah, but he but he didn't have well, enough of them to make much of a difference. So we, you know. Okay. Big, big deal. You have two of those. If he had a hundred of them, that'd be scary. Right. In America, this problem was exacerbated by the lack of a central intelligence agency. Fun fact, we did not have a CIA during World War II. Military authorities, with their constant propagandistic cheerleading, were difficult to trust. And among these authorities and government officials, myth and rumor were difficult to quash in the absence of a civilian intelligence agency, which the Americans would not develop until 1947, when we look back on World War II and said, boy, all those generals love to lie. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we huh. had civilians doing this? That's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, 47. Like, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> And we were really behind the times because Britain's MI6, famously associated in fiction with James Bond, and France's Ducem Bureau both predated the war. Also, I should say MI6 associated with Aleister Crowley. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. What is MI6? MI6? It's it's their CIA, basically. Oh, yeah. see. Military that. intelligence, I think, is what it stands for. Six. Pearl Harbor would convince the Americans that we should really probably go ahead and have foreign intelligence. Mm. Yeah, it would have been nice to have a man in Japan the day before Pearl Harbor. All that having been said, investment in aerospace engineering was clearly a greater priority in Germany than in the United States. In the 1940s, the Germans had 62 wind tunnels. The Americans, okay, here we go, Olivia. They had 62 wind tunnels. How many did we have? Uh, wait, what's a wind tunnel? Uh, it's like where you do like aerospace experiments. Like, you know, it's like giant fans. Oh, yeah. okay. How many do you uh, think we they, had? They had how many? They had 62. 24. Oh, now you overshot. We had three. <laughs> what? Wow, okay. I was really gonna, I was way more willing to give us more credit there for some reason. I don't know why. But... Should have just come back in with one. You would have been very close. <laughs> Wait, why? Okay. 
So that's crazy. Yeah, they were huh. way into aerospace research. Although, you know, we invented the airplane, right? So odd. We just weren't interested in developing it very much. In chemistry, the Germans contributed innovations in synthetic gasoline and rubber, which weren't economical in pre-war America. The Germans were interested in becoming self-sufficient, which required breaking their dependence on other nations for these particular resources. So they did a lot of experiments in developing synthetic gas and synthetic rubber. Another interesting contribution was the magnetic tape for recording. In their radio broadcasts, Europe in general relied less on live performances and more on recording. So they had more technological advances in recording technology than we did in the U.S. Isn't that fun? Hmm. This is all during the war still or after? Well, it's in the 40s. Uh, so it's pre, pre-war and up through the war. Okay. They were The Europeans oh. were doing all this stuff and we weren't so much. Yeah. So they were doing that, I guess. So so they wanted to be more independent knowing, like, or why, I guess. Yeah, with the chemistry, yeah, for sure. And even with the aerospace technology. With the recording technology, though, it was all of Europe who, like, you know, when you would list, t- tune into your radio, you were often listening to a recording. They would just record. They're like us. They would record in advance. Podcasting before podcasting was cool. It was cool back so they then. Just- but. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering, like, you said that they wanted to be more independent. Like, why? Was there a specific reason? Besides, well, the, uh, the like... Germans wanted to be self-sufficient, in large part, I think, because the you know, World War One did not go well for them, you know? Okay, that's what I was yeah. kind of assuming. I didn't know if it was, like, another reason. Well, if they learned anything, it's that they can't trust the rest of Europe or the world because, you know, the treaty yeah. went so hard against them, so. Right, okay, that's, okay, that's what I thought. Perhaps the most famous Nazi scientists brought over during Paperclip is a guy I've already mentioned, the rocket scientist Werner von Braun. Von Braun and his team helped to design Germany's V-2 rockets. They were brought over to the U.S. where he began working with the Army and then NASA, where he helped to design the Saturn V rocket. He did things with the letter V a lot. Saturn V, (laughs) Germany's V-2. Interesting. He would always ask, is there a V involved in the title of this rocket? (laughs) He inspired the character of Dr. Strangelove, the Kubrick (laughs) character, and the chief scientist in The Right Stuff, more recently. I don't know what that is. Uh, It's like a... I think it's about flying. Yeah, it's about flying. Hmm. You know, you got the right stuff. Test pilots. I think it's about test pilots. Hmm. When he approached the Americans about surrender, he emphasized a desire to bring his whole team along with him, exaggerating their accomplishments, particularly the accomplishments of junior members, so that he would be able to bring them to America. Otherwise, we would have been like, yeah, we don't want that guy. What did he do? Ultimately, about two dozen rocket scientists came with Von Braun, first to the Aberdeen Proving Ground right here in the great state of Maryland, and then to Fort Bliss in El Paso, and finally Huntsville, Alabama, during the Korean War. Just imagine all those German scientists (laughs) messing around Huntsville. In Alabama? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yep. Going to the uh, Winn-Dixie or whatever. (laughs) Going line dancing every Saturday night. (laughs) Right. Right when they're lederhosen. A local bar. (laughs) Wow. If only. (laughs) Uh, okay, so given the moral atrocities, apologies to Alabama. I'm sure we got <laughs> all of your culture wrong. You have no wind dixies. You don't line dance. I, I think everything I said was totally okay. right. I'm a it. Spot but. on. I bet there's p- photos out there of, v- of Werner von Braun and Lederhosen <laughs> line dancing in Alabama. Yep. So given the moral atrocities committed by the... Oh, let's talk about moral atrocities now. Let's bring it down. Great, yeah. Moral atrocities committed by the Nazis. This raises an ethical question for most of us who are hearing about these Nazis being imported to the U.S. to live out relatively normal lives. That question is, just how Nazi were these Nazi scientists? See, that's what I was kind of thinking earlier, but I didn't know if that was a dumb question. (laughs) Were they Holocaust Nazis or were they just like incidental Nazis? How Nazi are our Nazis? As with most things, we've got to take this question on a case-by-case basis, and even then it can be kind of complicated, particularly in the case of von Braun. The scientific community in Germany was as drawn to the Nazi party as the general population. So in other words, the percentage of scientists interested in being Nazis was equal to the percentage of regular Joes wanting to be Nazis. And Nazi nationalism was 
particularly popular at technical universities, where researchers believed that technology could return the great German nation to its former glory. The German economy had severely constricted as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, and German researchers learned to seek military dimensions to their work to receive state funding. Professional organizations in Germany gradually purged Jews from their roles to align themselves with the racial politics of the Nazi party and to keep on Hitler's good side, which was very narrow, I think, his good side. Mm. Yeah, hard, hard, to, hard to stay on that good side. Von Braun was particularly skilled at recruitment and managing people, although he could go on tangents in his research, and so the general uh, Walter Dornsberger had to keep him on track, instructing him to put off his side interests until after the war. That just sounds so sketch. Like, what? Uh, never mind. I guess it's, it speaks for itself. I don't know. Yeah, Von Braun, you know, he's a bright guy. I'm not going to compare myself to him, but yeah, if you think about the podcast, like we can go on tangents and you know start doing like episodes on stuff and get into wormholes and or rabbit holes, I should say, and sometimes wormholes. Uh, he was sort of like that. Like if something catches my interest, I'll end up doing seven episodes on you know satanic panic or satanic ritual abuse. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Yeah. Um, which might be you know it's a little to the left of what we were doing the season before. That's sort of how von Braun was. He would go in these different directions, but that's not really useful if you're trying to build war machines. You need to be okay. laser so they were like just focused. Like, you can't go build some random shit. You gotta yeah. You gotta build that airplane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So von Braun so impressed Hitler that he insisted, Hitler himself insisted on personally signing the scientist's promotion to full professor. What an endorsement. What? <laughs> yes. Isn't that something? Okay. Great. <clears throat> right. Um, he joined the SS apparently, I'm speaking about von Braun, for the political connections and the opportunity to attend a horse riding school, which he apparently enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Wait, what? Wait. Okay. So my rocket scientist, <laughs> someone was like, hey, do you want to be a member of the SS? And he was like, do you have, do you have, do you have ponies? And they were like, yes, we do. And he was like, okay. Yeah, that's all he wanted. Uh, however, okay. he equated the SS with an excess of, quote, liquid manure, which would kill the little flower of his precious rocket program. So, this is a weird dude. He is. He's definitely something <laughs> okay. else. By most accounts, Von Braun was primarily interested in developing a rocket that could go into space. He could care less about the war. The rocket they developed, the V-2, was in fact fairly irrational from a military standpoint and not an especially good investment for the German military. It costs so much, you know, to build these things uh, and because you could shoot it to the moon. Like, there was no good reason to have it for, you know, any kind of military tactics that were going on on the field. Wait, what is it? Like, what is the... The V-2 rocket. Oh, it's a rocket. Yeah, yeah. Basically a rocket that could take you into space. But he said to Hitler, oh, you can totally use that in your war. (laughs) Go for it. Weird? Yeah, you could use this space rocket. Sure. Why not? Just shoot it at people. Whatever. Eventually, he was arrested and spent three weeks in custody for, quote, anti-Nazi utterances, including that the V-2 oh. should be used for space travel rather than military applications. Oh, shit. He's speaking, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth to the Nazis. Okay. Yeah. Now, so maybe I think that all that evidence tilts in his favor. Like, now we're feeling okay with him being in the U.S. He, he was kind of anti-Nazi. He only joined the SS because of the ponies. Fine. However, there is some darker stuff in in his experience with the Nazis. He was complicit in their use of slave labor to produce the V-2 rocket. Tens of thousands worked on and died producing the V-2, and the SS experimented with the V-2 by bombing German towns in Pomerania. In fact, more people died producing the V-2 than died as a result of its use as a weapon. Damn. Wait, so are people dying from it by, like, testing it, or, like, the te- are they yeah. actually manufacturing the it? The testing killed them, but I'm going to just, I'm about to describe the conditions for the labor oh, camps okay. in the Nazi, and you'll get the sense of how people died there. He may or may not have known uh, about the Nazi tests in Pomerania, 
but he certainly did know about the conditions in the labor camps because he visited the camps at both Dora and Buchenwald to recruit skilled workers from the forced labor force at both camps, and he saw the terrible sleeping conditions and the treatment of the workers in these camps. Inmates who were taken as prisoners of war or as part of the Nazis' final solution. So we're talking, you know, Jews, um, homosexuals, gypsies, plus, you know, if you were just an American GI or a French, uh, you know, GI or something and were captured, you might end up in this situation. You could be executed for taking a bathroom break and you were beaten mercilessly for even the slightest infraction. Dora survivor uh, Jean-Michel believed that von Braun and his fellow scientists would have preferred to have their missiles constructed under more civilized conditions, but their ambition to produce a rocket for space exploration precipitated what, what he considered a horrific, immoral compromise. So he was so Science. obsessed with going to space. Yeah. yeah. Science. Science. <laughs> science matters more than ethics or morality. He blinded himself with science, if you will. Yeah. Which is not uncommon. While von Braun was by no means clear of the stain of Nazi atrocities, it's conceivable how American engineers and military officials could make the case for adopting him and his crew. The Nazis had, after all, briefly imprisoned him for not being sufficiently Nazi. So that's really all you need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to blind yourself with science, you know, you can you can put that on your document and you're like, nah, he's not a real Nazi. Hitler put him in jail for three weeks. Also kind of, you know, signed his paperwork to become a tenured faculty member. But, you know... <laughs> Yeah, like what? Okay. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Very, uh, you know, on the fence kind of character here. But it gets worse from Von Braun. Other paperclip recruits are, in my opinion, harder to justify. So we, I think together, Olivia, you and I could see the case for Von Braun, right? Yeah, I think I like, I, I've seen his movie type, like his type in the movies, yeah. you know? Like I, I get, I guess, kind of. But He's definitely complicit in some war crimes, but he was also n- not on board with the whole Hitler deal. So the case can be made for him, but th- th- some of these other folks, I don't know if there's a case at all. Let's get into them. And they were paperclip recruits. The United States government recruited these folks. Okay, so I'm talking about the people involved in medical experiments on concentration camp victims. Oh, yeah, these people suck. Yeah. These doctors argued that their experiments were humane because their inmates were scheduled for execution either way, and the tests gave them a chance at survival. God. But the suffering they caused to these people and the horrors that they countenanced make such a case extremely difficult to sustain, as I believe and as I think you can hear Olivia also expressing. A couple of folks here I want to talk about. Fritz Termier and Otto Ambros. By no means the only folks involved in medical experimentation, but two folks that ended up coming to the United States. After serving a seven-year sentence for mass murder and enslavement, Termier went on to become the chairman of the board of directors at Bayer AG, perhaps best known in, the co- in commercial culture for their aspirin. Oh my god. Okay. A seven-year sentence for mass murder. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's like, I don't know. It's like going up to Ted Bundy and saying, you know what? Uh, I I mean, you killed a lot of people there, but we've got this opening for a CEO. People are literally in jail, like for their whole lives because of marijuana charges. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, they they should have uh, been medical experimenters or something. Ambrose, sentenced for crimes against humanity, was released in 1951 and went on to advise Dow Chemical and the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. Also, Hubertus Strughold, who was a key figure in the science of surviving spaceflight and dubbed the father of space medicine, uh, was also made the namesake of a major award, I assume the Strughold Award. Uh, He was involved in oxygen deprivation experiments on epileptic children taken from the Brandenburg Euthanasia Center. What the f- Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Did we not, like, know that when we made an award after him? Oh, or? we knew. We knew. Right. I mean, All right. You, I just you, wanted to, like, clarify that we knew. I feel a little uncomfortable saying we. They knew. Well, yeah. <laughs> we were not in existence you, yet. No, we were not. And we are hum- we're humanities people and artists. We would not have countenanced such immoral behavior. No. Now I'm like, we have to cancel science, we have to cancel space, we have to cancel medicine. Like, we start I don't the know. campaign. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, yeah. So these, the prominence these Nazi scientists were able to achieve speaks to the profound distrust paperclip rightfully inspired in the government's moral compass, leading to conspiracy theories and legends of various kinds, including the myth of Dr. Green. Oh, right. That's what this is about. That's where we're going, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, the legend holds that Green was the architect of the CIA's mind control program. It's a staple of conspiracy theory that the CIA developed a program to mind control a collection of mostly female super spies, also known as Project Monarch. We are now two episodes deep on Project Monarch. This is number three. Yep. These women served as messengers, drug mules, and sex slaves, often forgetting the details of their service on behalf of the CIA as a result of their programming. The programming involved a form of ritual abuse, purportedly designed by Green, that incorporated occult themes. The abuse created split personalities, which could be individually programmed to perform different functions for the government. You ready for this? Yep. Green services in Walter H. Bowert's Compendium of Mind Control Conspiracy Theory, Operation Mind Control. The book was first published in 1978, but Bowert updated it twice and added to the text hundreds of pages uh, in 1994 and then, I believe, 2017. Oh, that's not that long ago. No, no, he's been, he's been working on it. 2017? Yeah, yeah. Jeez, Okay. According to a paper prepared by a survivor of, quote, marionette programming, Dr. Green was a Nazi scientist who endeavored to train a force to prepare for the return of the Antichrist in 1999. So we dodged okay. a bullet there. Right. The report concluded that the disclaim- with the disclaimer, these notes are not to be taken at face value. They are ideas and clinical observations shared by survivors. It's also possible that some of this information is disinformation designed to confuse the survivor or anyone else attempting to help them. It's the ultimate backdoor there. So if you find any of that right. ridiculous, well, that's probably just disinformation, but there are other things in here that you should believe. Hmm. Perhaps the most full-throated articulation of the Dr. Green legend comes from Dr. D. Corydon Hammond, board-certified family psychologist, hypnotist, and member of the Clinical Neuroscience Society, also emeritus clinical professor at the University of Utah School of Medicine. I list Hammond's credentials at length because it was the wholesale acceptance of various legends of satanic ritual abuse by respected figures in psychology and criminal justice that spurred the spread of the satanic moral panic. I do not blame Hammond for inventing this theory, but rather for uncritically accepting it from his patients' reports and those of other therapists. Mm. Hammond serves as a reminder of how our own educational attainment can blind us with hubris into thinking that anything we believe to be reasonable must be reasonable because we're so smart. This happens regardless of how many or how few degrees we've attained, particularly in America. (laughs) I don't need no college degree. I have a college degree. I have a PhD. Yep. Uh, uh, Yeah. (laughs) Moron knows knows no demographic. America's long tradition of anti-intellectual prejudice convinces the uneducated that they know better than us academic elites just as easily as us academic elites convince ourselves that we know better than everybody else. The truth is, we're all always responsible for producing evidence germane to our claims that stand up to scrutiny and that bear out to the conclusions we attempt to draw. This is what it means to take a critical and thoughtful approach to our beliefs— Evidence need not always be material, particularly when we're thinking about spiritual claims. But if we're making a claim about the material universe, we should expect some material evidence for it. Between the spiritual and the material is the fuzzy world of the emotional and the psychological. And this, this, Olivia, is where we must seek evidence for or against the green legend. Yeah, preach. Let's go. Let's Let's do do it. it. Hammond's infamous Green Bomb speech was shared at the 4th Annual Eastern Regional Conference on Abuse and Multiple Personality held in Alexandria, Virginia, not far from from where I am in Annapolis, on the 25th of June, 1992. As scholars of the Satanic Panic, Debbie Nathan and Michael Snedeker argue, these conferences were were sites where therapists learned stories like the one about Dr. Green and then projected them onto their patients across the country. After hearing about ritual abuse at a conference, 
Dr. Hammond found himself treating his very first ritual abuse patient, who happened to be someone he was already treating in advance, and, I'm quoting him here, we hadn't gotten that deep yet. So he's treating somebody, Uh, you got me? Goes to the conference, (laughs) hears about this ritual abuse, comes back, and suddenly the patient now has ritual abuse claims. You'd think a therapist would, like, understand that they're just projecting basically or that they're just taking like I guess I get it I get how like in the moment I guess as a well actually no I don't get it <laughs> I, I mean Olivia this is I'm working on this right now I'm doing uh, some research I'm working on an article uh, about this all this all these issues and I think what, what it comes down to I'm actually reading a, a collection of essays on multiple personality disorder that was published the same year that Kathy O'Brien's book uh, Transformation of America was published to sort of see what the attitude was toward all these things at the same time period. And there's a lot of argument around ritual abuse, even though ritual abuse as a topic by 1995 had been panned on, you know, like the Oprah show and, you know, 2020 and all these magazines and newspapers had decided ritual abuse was made up. Mm-hmm. But you know, the writers of this book in 95, who are clinical therapists, psychologists, you know, PhD folks, or MDs, they're, some of them are, you know, very passionately opposed to the idea that ritual abuse existed, or ever ever existed in any form. In part, I think, because of the case we've been making. But some folks, because we're dealing with abuse survivors, are really reluctant to say that they're lying or lying completely or lying about everything. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Because these are, I said in the Kathy O'Brien episode, I personally think just my personal opinion that she's probably the victim of abuse, not the abuse she described at the hands of Dick Cheney and Ronald Reagan. But nevertheless, there's probably some form of abuse, particularly in her childhood was, is my guess. So it's really difficult to point at these people and say, you know, you're lying because it's not entirely true. So I I think that that becomes, people sort of split into camps where the one camp is saying ritual abuse is completely imaginary and the other camp is saying you you must believe survivors, you know, believe all women, believe all children, you know, that sort of ideology. Both of them are too extreme. I didn't really think about it even in terms of like, if that were to happen, like, today like again if we had another satanic panic somehow like social media like yeah anyway i think it's conceivable it's possible in our culture don't you to have something like this again i mean we sort of already are we'll talk about it again well i think yeah i think it's like you know shit comes in waves Mm -hmm. of like yeah like right now we're in the new age yeah everyone wants baby witch (laughs) (laughs) at this yeah we're sort of sitting we're seeing a revival of the 60s and 70s in many ways with that and you know with the conspiracy culture and a lot of stuff is sort of new again i think it's also like a lot of the people that were goth kids like in the 90s are now like ah yes no one can stop me from (laughs) openly being like hail satan like (laughs) whether you know you mean it or not but you know what i mean So I mentioned multiple personality. Let's dig down into that a little bit. Uh, Hammond gets curious about the connections between multiple personality disorder, signs of which his patient displayed, and ritual abuse. And he decides to survey 18 therapists who all report seeing the same link. So I have gone from someone kind of neutral and not knowing what to think about it, to someone who clearly believes ritual abuse is real, and that people who say it isn't are either naive, like people who didn't want to believe the Holocaust, or they're dirty. They're not saying, like, that's the only link, right? <laughs> like No, but I, I mean, some therapists do, did come to believe that, you know, something like 80 or 90% of MPD cases, multiple personality or dissociative identity, were a product of ritual abuse. Because, I mean, like, now we accept that, like, trauma is, like, the key factor in, like, DID. So, like, I guess I was just wondering if it, that's, like... At that time period... Not on their radar yet, I'm not but, saying Hammond believed this, but there were folks who did believe that... Not only was it trauma, but ritual abuse itself was, you know, a vast majority of cases had been caused by ritual abuse. So by dirty here, Hammond means that some deniers of the ritual abuse theory are themselves implicated in a ritual abuse conspiracy. Myself, as well as a few others that I've shared it with, were hedging out of concern and out of personal threats and out of death threats. 
I finally decided to hell with them. If they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. It's time to share more information with therapists. That's another back door, right? Another back door. They're all over the place. Children exposed to cult activity, either because they are raised in a mainstream cult, I'm quoting him here, or a regular shadowy cult, share similar traits. (laughs) (laughs) That's me about the regular shadowy cult. Regular cults should be shadowy, but Hammond is also talking about mainstream cults. I don't know if he means the Mormons. He's from Utah. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Like, what's a mainstream cult versus a in the shadows cult? It could be evangelicals, charismatics. I, I don't know. Okay. So Hammond says that they have this in common, but what exactly he means by this is unclear. He could mean that their abuse at the hands of cult members, children are abused by cult members in mainstream cults and shadowy cults. Uh, He could mean the subsequent psychological abnormalities caused by that abuse, or he could mean both of those things. Really not evident in, in his remarks. At this point, Hammond explicates a story that seems to be the product of folklore passed among therapists and between patients and therapists, growing increasingly complex and likely in the minds of those who pass it on as the community who hears it gets larger. So more people are passing these stories and it starts to sound more and more plausible because you're hearing it from all these people now, right? Like if if we went, if we, I don't know, had a call with the alchemical actors and suddenly everybody's talking about how, you know, there's a, a green alien came to their house and crawled up their butts, we'd be like, whoa, I was not worried about that before, but now I am. Right. <laughs> I'm going to start wearing tighter underwear. I don't know. So Hammond says that Alan Dulles decided to rescue uh, Nazi rocket scientists and docked, quoting, doctors who have been doing mind control research in camps. So the Nazi rocket scientists is true. Medical researchers is true. Mind control research, we don't know. Rescue? What do you mean rescue? Well, from, you know, being... Well, in the case of... Well, I'll tell you oh, the, the story. Like the image or... Uh, literally rescue them from being imprisoned or executed for war uh... crimes. Um, okay. Among the Nazis that Alan Dulles saves, Dulles, by the way, we an air, our airport is named for him, right, right by us here in DC. Oh, yep. shit. Okay. Among those Nazis was a young boy, a teenager who had been raised in a Hasidic Jewish tradition and a had a background of Kabbalistic mysticism. So what Hammond is telling an audience of professional therapists right now. Okay. The connection to Kabbalah probably appealed to people in the cult, he says, because at least by the turn of the century, Aleister Crowley had been introducing Kabbalism into satanic stuff. Okay, well, that's (laughs) kind of true. Generic term, but sure. I I always uh, sort of cringe at the association of Crowley with Satanism. It's it's really uh, anachronistic. Yeah, huh. The teenager had saved himself by collaborating and being an assistant to Nazi doctors in the death camp experiments, and the boy went on to get a medical degree, Americanized his name from Greenbaum to Green, and took a job at the cult, uh, quoting here, the Center of Cult Programming uh, in the intelligence community. I thought they were trying, they were like, the Nazis were like, not okay with like Jewish people in like their science like field except for this guy except for this guy okay so this guy is just a weird exception uh well i think you're pointing out that historically this guy is on highly unlikely to exist okay cool (laughs) i want to dig in a little bit about how this character even gets formed you know as a imagine him as like a fictional character a character of legend that these guys want to believe in anti-semitism has been an ages-old standard theme in conspiracy theory, as Olivia knows, going back before the blood libel charges of the Middle Ages. However, after the Second World War, when the Nazis brought anti-Semitic ideology to the point of genocide, conspiracy theory had to adapt. Before the Second World War, uh, uh, Nesta Helen Webster, right? Remember her? She was all about the protocols of the elders of Zion. I mean, it, conspiracy theory was willing to trade in anti-Semitism, more or less openly. But, you know, now that World War II has happened and there was this mass genocide, hor- these the horrors of the war, anti-Semitism is no longer just something you can speak out loud. It makes you look like a Nazi. So it was no longer appropriate to suggest the existence of an international Jewish cabal. And so in the second half of the 20th century into the 21st century, conspiracy theorists shifted to suggesting the existence of a cabal 
that happened to be largely Jewish. You see? The drops made by the anonymous Q that form the core of the QAnon conspiracy place three families at the top of the international deep state. Two of those, Rothschild and Soros, are Jewish. Uh, right. Yeah. Oddly, postmodern conspiracy is also intensely anti-Nazi. Seeing hidden designs in the paperclip program and imagining enemies acting to restore the Third Reich, Dr. Greenbaum perfectly captures this balancing act, since he was, according to legend, both Jewish and, as Olivia's mentioned, highly improbably a Nazi. Yeah. In this way, the legend can be overtly anti-Nazi while also being covertly anti-Semitic. The anti-Semitism becomes secret. Not, not entirely secret, but like, mm, it's got a cover. It's got a screen. Greenbaum's dark Jewish secrets in the form of Kabbalistic magic lie at the heart of what will become his nefarious mind control techniques. Presumably, this is the reason the Nazi scientists saved him from destruction at the hands of the SS. But we don't know. Because it's probably, because it's made up. Because it's made up. Not probably. It's made up. Yeah, I, I think I can't wrap my head around it <laughs> being realistic. I don't know. And this is a conference. It's an academic conference. I attend academic conferences where this guy yeah. is giving this speech. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's a weird TED Talk. I don't know. <laughs> yes, right. Imagine it as a TED Talk. <laughs> it's Digging further on the themes in Hammond's occult remarks, the reference to Crowley is characteristically inaccurate. Crowley was interested in Kabbalah. His Thelemic practice was very much eclectic, also included Christian and to some extent Muslim esotericism. Remember, he wandered the desert. And, and as I said earlier, it's exhausting the degree to which me as an occult researcher must clarify that Crowley was in no meaningful sense a Satanist. In order to call Crowley a Satanist, we we imply belief in a long-standing Satanic cult stretching back through millennia, and believing in such a Satanic conspiracy requires buying into the Black Mass legend, which we've already debunked. So, Hammond tried to get his patients to name Dr. Green by asking if they'd been treated by a doctor with the name that was a color. So he's like, ooh, were you treated by a doctor? Yes. Yes. Was it a Dr. color? Brown. <laughs> right, Dr. Brown. <laughs> Dr. Aquamarine. A few patients mentioned green. Others mentioned other colors, probably like brown. Uh, and Hammond felt that these patients who were naming other colors were trying to dissimulate in some way. Okay. Yeah. Another patient mentioned a color that turned out to be the name of another doctor who was trained by Dr. Green. Dr. Orange, I presume. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, there is green programming. There's also ultra green programming and green tree programming because green bomb, the, the suffix bomb in a name, bomb means tree. Oh, Tannenbaum. So oh, green tree is green bomb programming. So those are the different variations of green's programming. Hammond recommends to us, his audience, that we study the Kabbalistic tree and pick up a book by a man named Dion Fortune. <laughs> Oh, my God. Welcome back. You know that guy? Oh uh, the joke being, of course, that Dion Fortune was a woman. He emphasizes, well, our joke. He didn't know that. Um, right. <laughs> and, and nobody laughed in his audience because I'm sure nobody there knew that either. Hammond's method of extracting the doctor's name assumes that it must be green. If patients tell him anything but green, he creates a reason for why they've produced the wrong answer. Hammond knows before he asks. The evidence isn't coming from the patient to the therapist. It's going from the therapist to the patient. Not good science. No. It's, uh, this is called iatrogenesis. This is a new word I, I learned. Oh. This could be our, our wow, that's word for the day. Big word. Iatrogenesis. Uh, and that's when a therapist instills an idea within a patient that they didn't have on their own. Or, uh, I guess in the case of multiple personality, gives, sort of encourages a patient's multiple personality. Using Dr. Green's system, the CIA operating either on a military base or a cult school caused a child to become dissociative through sexual and violent abuse. They will, for example, wait to remove a mousetrap from the child's fingers until the child has stopped crying. Then, they 
strap the naked child to a gurney, show the child a red, white, or blue pulsing light, give the child Demerol, and poke the child in the ear with a needle, causing them to hear weird, disorienting sounds. Then, these government abusers begin the programming, which is self-destructive and debasing. One of Hammond's female patients said she was programmed with shocking electrodes in her vagina and on her head. They would tell her how they wanted her to feel and shock her until she somehow complied by manifesting the desired emotion. Then, they'd tell her to cut herself when she had the feeling they'd precipitated and shock her until she again complied. This lasted between 30 minutes and 3 hours and took place 3 times a week. Ooh, that number 3. Over and over again. Then, Hammond detailed the different varieties of mind-control slaves based on the Greek alphabet, which is a regular feature in CIA sex slave memoirs, including O'Brien, and uh, Fritz Springmeier gets into this as well in his account of Monarch. Alphas have general programming, betas have sexual programming, deltas are trained assassins, thetas are psychic killers who cause brain aneurysms psychically. Let me say that one more time. Psychic killers who cause brain aneurysms psychically. Well, that sounds maybe like the best one to be, but also maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, The final one is Omega training, which is training for self-mutilation and suicide. Definitely the worst one to be. God, no, yeah. Uh, But yeah, this includes the notion that that psychic phenomena is quite real um walter h bowert interviews a woman he calls volpez victoria volpez that's a pseudonym but she claims that she was programmed to become a psychic and that she developed psychic ability through her programming Uh, but psychic killers we get into some some crazy stuff on the podcast but including hex death for sure but i don't think that we've ever come across any psychics who are sufficiently telekinetic to cause an aneurysm yeah the only thing I can even think of, what was that one guy we talked about that, like, he used, like, he was, like, trained to, like, psychically find, like, locations of shit? Oh, yeah. Well, we talked about a few folks, and that was a, also a CIA program. Was, but it kind of reminds me but, of that a little bit. Yeah, they, they were remote viewers. The CIA's remote viewer program. Uh, but they could see stuff, but they couldn't kill the people that they saw. <laughs> So it's not even really psychic. It is telekinetic. I mean, this is like Carrie stuff. Hammond turns to dark clues of the conspiracy surrounding these patients. In order to prevent the program from ever being uncovered, agents warned these mind control victims that if they ever remembered anything about their programming, they would go crazy. The transcript includes questions and answers for Hammond after his presentation. How, someone asks, does Hammond erase the program implanted in his patients? You're going to find that probably greater than 50% of these patients will be monitored on some ongoing basis. There are different layers, and I think some of them are designed to keep us going in circles forever. They've we figured that in most cases we wouldn't get below the altars which they purposely created. Hammond believes that the CIA is attempting to produce an army of Manchurian candidates, tens of thousands of mental robots for purposes of prostitution, child pornography, drug and arm smuggling, and snuff films. The megalomaniacs at the top, he says, believe they'll create a satanic order that will rule the world. I would say I want the core, if necessary, using the telepathic communication ability you have to read minds. Because they believe that kind of stuff, so I'll use it. I was trained in Ericksonian stuff to obtain, for me, the erasure code of all Omega programs. When you've done so, I want the yes finger to float up. Then I ask them to tell me, are there backups for the Omega programs? Yes. Okay, how many backups are there? Is there an erasure code that combines all the backups in one? Yes, obtain that code for me, and when you've got it, give me the yes signal again. Yeah. Another audience member reveals the degree to which the therapist listening to Hammond were willing to accept these ideas. The person asks if all this, and I'm quoting here, spook stuff, horror stuff, possession, and everything else surfacing in popular culture, going back to the 1970s, is meant to soften the public up to accept the satanic world order when it takes over. Hammond says, of course, that's likely. Why not? Why not? It's all we're all just going to be living in the wicker man from now on. Christopher Lee will be at our door in a wig. 
It's he, Christopher Lee is coming for us. According to Debunker, if you haven't seen The Wicker Man, <laughs> treat yourself. Confusing. Treat yourself this week. Oh, Olivia, treat yourself this weekend. You're going to love it. Hmm. It's about a little Scottish town that it practices this pagan religion and this cop shows up who's super Christian. You're going to love it. Yeah. I remember hearing about it at one point. Some consider it the greatest horror movie of all time. I think it got spoiled to me like forever ago. So I never, but I've seen clips uh-huh. of it. Like, well, maybe, oh, maybe you've forgotten now. Because <laughs> I can't remember, so I'm like, <laughs> yeah. maybe I should go back. Go ahead, yeah. Have a, have, that'll be fun for the weekend. All right, let's debunk this, shall we? <clears throat> According to debunker Douglas Mesner at grayfaction.org, Hammond gave up working with patients who believed themselves to be victims of ritual abuse. In an email exchange that Mesner had with Hammond in 2013, Hammond said he had not worked in satanic abuse for 20 years, meaning that he quit just a year after giving the Green Bomb speech. 92, Green Bomb speech, 93, he's out convenient i guess it was a good idea on his part professionally right mesner points out that a detailed investigation by a utah task force found no evidence of any of the claims made by hammond so or his patients presumably right in utah when we're talking about the CIA, an organization designed to keep secrets, it's difficult to say with absolute certainty that no such program like the one described by Hammond ever existed. But the ways in which the Dr. Green legend connect with themes in conspiracy lore, overtly anti-Nazi, Nazi, and covertly anti-Semitic, also an imagined satanic cabal, etc., etc., also, the ways Hammond accidentally reveals himself leading his patients to articulate a legend he's chosen to believe, all these things, give us good reason to doubt whether any of what these patients have disclosed is true. It is my personal belief that there are often legitimate experiences of abuse at the heart of the patient's life experience, but it is extremely likely that the strange details that surfaced on therapist couches in the 1980s and first half of the 90s were imagined somewhere between the doctor and patient and mutually reinforced. I said I would do a little caveat here, and I I am. It's an interesting one, in my opinion. Uh, And it comes from Fritz Springmeier. Do you remember Fritz Springmeier at all, Olivia? From last, a year ago, when we were doing the the first conspiracy series? The name. He was jailed for bank robbery. I think a, a armed robbery, maybe not bank robbery, but armed robbery he was jailed for. I don't remember, but his name is really familiar. So Springmeier is, is sort of like central to the John Todd conspiracy. Uh, he go, oh, went and interviewed okay. John Todd in jail. Okay. That was yeah. I remember that. So he wrote a book about Project Monarch where he sort of outlined how Project Monarch works and he worked it into the John Todd satanic witch cabal Illuminati conspiracy. And he said that Dr. Green is actually uh, Joseph Mengele, or Mengele. Mengele? Mengele, there you go. I think that's how you say it. The freaking crazy freaking Nazi scientist dude is what we're talking about? Concentration camp scientist, yeah. yeah. The researcher, medical researcher. Yeah. Yeah, he, so Springmeier doesn't trade with this anti-Semitism. He skips the Jewish cabal entirely and goes straight for Mengele. Mm, okay. Mengele famously had done, uh, infamously had done experiments on twins, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that Mengele evaded capture and fled to South America, where he drowned in 1985 before he could be brought to trial for his crimes at Auschwitz. There was an interview with one of the twins I watched. That Really? Yeah, she was like, obviously a lot older. So, uh, I mean, Hammond is articulating a, a, a certain Dr. Green theory, but I don't want us to think that it's um, monolithic. There are variations on the Dr. Green legend within the monarch conspiracy, you see. So Mengele certainly would not have been an occultist necessarily, but I, I, I think Springmeier would be very comfortable linking him up to an Illuminati. Okay. Yes. Anyhow, yeah, interesting little side note, I suppose. The reason, I'm, uh, the reason that understanding and unpacking these legends is important, I'm going to say one more time, is because they have returned in what I'm calling a satanic conspiracy revival with a strong element of ritual abuse central to the theory. Next time on A Call Confessions, the satanic panic strikes back in the 21st 
century. But first, let's gong it into the order of confessors. Slip Picnic Basket says A+. I love that for some reason. <laughs> slip, slip Picnic Basket. Yeah. A+, plus. we handle our topics with grace. Uh, these, by the way, are folks, uh, again, who had responded to our call to shield us from the conspiracy believers. <laughs> hey, you answered that call. Yeah, answered that call. From the Real Nova says that their grandmother actually believed in the satanic panic, but doesn't anymore. Listen to this. Because she listens to our show. What? Grandma, shout out to you. Hell Eyes yeah, opened. Grandma. Yes. Wow. Love it. Banshee X Cat says we're a breath of fresh air in the conspiracy theory genre. I guess we are in the genre. We don't mean to be, but <laughs> these usernames are coming for it today. I don't know. Well, Christiana T. Okay, well that's a name. Likes it uh, when we keep things fun and doesn't want us to get too serious. We, could, we had some fun today, didn't we? we? Had some fun. Considering the topic, yeah. Yeah, I think it got real serious in the black mass stuff. Got a real yeah. Real serious. Dorcas72 says we're informative, objective, and entertaining. Melissa J333 says A+. Love it. I love that that is like somehow (laughs) still going. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. We can't get enough of the A+. Love it. Yeah. All right. uh, Let's, uh, well, I'll I'll list our sources today, which are Douglas M.O. Reagan's Taking Nazi Technology, Allied Exploitation of German Science After the Second World War, Brian E. Krim's Our Germans, Project Paperclip in the National Security State, also Walter H. Bowert's Operation Mind Control, the Green Bomb Speech, of course, by D.C. Hammond, and Douglas Mesner at grayfaction.org. Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Our voice today was by Sean Priest. He gave us a little uh, little Hammond there. Uh, otherwise, it's been us. Uh, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I'm here with Olivia Litterall, our Grandmaster. Yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, that's the end. That's it for us on Nazis. <laughs> for, for today, anyway. Get rid of them today. For today. Uh, on next, on next, our next episode, uh, we're going to conclude our series here on satanic ritual abuse by bringing it, uh, bringing it up to the present day with the uh, conspiracy theory of the secret elite satanic cabal that has been advanced by uh, PizzaGate theorists and uh, QAnon. So, yes, love gonna, all that's going to come with that. Oh yeah, I'm going to do that and be done, and then I can move on with my life. All right. <laughs> Uh, and after that, but speaking of moving on with our lives, we're going to move into um, the fictional occult. So the way occultism has come over from fictional stories into real life and back and forth. So that'll be our next series, something to look forward to. All right, Olivia, uh, I guess we'll catch them next time. See you guys. Thanks for listening.